Our second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The word of the Lord. At that uh, critical moment in It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey is in the bar and he's in tears. The turning point happens. He cries out, Dear Father in heaven, I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there and you can hear me, show me the way. I'm at the end of my rope. Show me the way, God. It's a tearful turning point. God answers his prayer. It's amazing. According to the Pew Research Survey in 2014, 75% of Americans pray daily or weekly. We go to God with our hopes and our needs. The survey said many of us go to God for discernment when making big decisions, and we all go when we're desperate, like George Bailey at the end of our rope. Christianity takes it a step further and says prayer is actually integral to knowing, experiencing, and walking with God in life. The Psalms are probably the oldest prayer book ever, where numerous psalmists thousands of years ago write out their cries and laments, their anger and frustration, their longings, their confession, their praise, their needs. Paul opens nearly every one of his letters with prayer and talking about how he's praying for the churches that he's planted. And at one point he says, pray without ceasing. That's so easy to do. Jesus. Jesus was God's son, and yet he continually went away seeking the Father in prayer. Prayer is integral to knowing, experiencing, and walking with God, and yet most of us aren't so swell at it. We aren't sure how to do it, or we just go around feeling guilty because we know we're not doing it enough. Over the next four weeks, we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer, not just purely for the theology, but to help form our thinking about prayer a little bit. And it's part of a series that we're calling For the Journey, the journey being the metaphor for that pilgrim's progress, the way our spiritual life is like a journey. And our, our goal is to not just stay stagnant in our spiritual life. 
And two of the critical elements of spiritual growth throughout history in the church has been the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments, shaping our prayer life and our understanding of who God is and what He wants of us in this world. For the next four weeks, we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer. So the Lord's Prayer is in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This is that manifesto where he's describing this new kingdom that he has come to bring. There's a new way that God wants us to to live in his reign because of Jesus. And then he tells us how to pray in Matthew 6, in the middle of the sermon. And when you pray, he, he says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, also do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is probably the single most well-known prayer in the history of humanity. And in it, we are given something to pray and recite Some of you come from traditions where you did that every week, and others of you thought that felt a little bit too much not like your tradition. But there's a reason why Jesus gives it to us, and I think it is as a pattern, if not something we actually pray itself. Some of you, if you grew up in churches and have been a part of youth groups, you learned the acronym ACTS, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication or Petition. You could do worse than borrowing from this, from Jesus' own words about seeking after the Father in His name, in his will, in his kingdom, and then bringing your daily bread, your forgiveness, your needs before him. So we're going to look at it as a way to help guide us and hopefully shape our prayer life as well. First thing I want us to see as we look at this prayer is the address, the opening word. It's our Father. It's kind of obvious that he says our Father, right? But it says a lot. How we conceive of God is actually integral to how we pray, and we're going to talk a lot about that today. How we conceive of God shapes how we approach prayer, what we think is supposed to happen in it, and why we go about doing it. Jesus says, here's how you pray, our Father. And two weeks ago, we talked about how he uses the word Abba, an Aramaic word meaning dad or father, but in an intimate way. What's amazing about this is that it opened the door to seeing God personally, intimately, and relationally. In Eastern religions, God is a distant, unknowable source or force. In Western religions, like Judaism and Islam, God is personal, but holy, and so holy you stay away. But Jesus comes in and says, no, no, no. He is Abba. Yes, he is holy and other, but he is also personal and relational. This was radical to the Jewish mindset that thought God was in that holy of holies and only priests should go there. Jesus is saying, no, you don't have to be a priest or a rabbi or learned. And on top of that, it's an Aramaic word. You know why that's significant? Because if you were a Jew, there was one language you prayed in, Hebrew. 
The Psalms were written in Hebrew. When you went to liturgy, to synagogues, it was in Hebrew. So in other words, to really be a convert to the Jewish God, you had to know and learn Hebrew. Aramaic was the language of the common peoples in the Middle East at that time, Samaritans, Syrians, and Jews. Think about how radical that is, that Jesus says, I'm going to teach you how to pray, and he doesn't use a Hebrew word for a God. He uses a common language that's outside of ethnicity or religiousness. He said, no, because of me, there is access for everyone. And it's a common language of people who were not learned. If you were not a Jew, you had to study to learn Hebrew, but just by being alive in that Middle Eastern culture, you knew Aramaic. God is open and available to anyone and everyone. This was incredibly radical. And then he goes on in the prayer, and he gives us his list of things to pray for, for the name of God to be hallowed, for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done. And then our own needs, daily bread, forgiveness, protection, and deliverance from evil. I think what we find in this prayer is that it's for those who realize they need something from God. They need bread, they need forgiveness, they need protection. In other words, this is a prayer for the humble and the broken and the desperate. Not for the good, those who are in control of their life, not for the successful. And today, we're going to focus just on the first half, the first three, the ones that are focused on God so that it shapes our understanding of God before we address the ones that talk about our own need. So if we're looking at that, we're going to look at his name, his kingdom, and his will. So, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name is the first petition in there. So just to break that one down, when you talk about God's name or a name in the ancient world, it had to do with everyone, everyone's, a person's character, what they were like, their personality. And so when we talk about God's name, it's not just some word, which word do you use for God? It is all that can be said that's true about God. His nature, all that he's done, and all that he promises. And the idea of hallowing God's name is to revere, honor, respect, worship God for who he is. So when we pray, if we are to pray, hallowed be thy name, it's to actually pray that all of creation, every other person in all of creation would worship God as God. That everyone, everywhere would trust and know God. And in that sense, it's a missional prayer that the gospel would go forth, that people would come to hear the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ and would believe and know the one true God. And they too would know God as their father. So we spend our lives praying for a lot of things, but one of the things we're called to pray for is for the name of God to be worshiped everywhere. A second, the second petition is, thy kingdom come. The kingdom that God's talking, that Jesus is talking about here was a Hebrew idea that Jesus then takes on that means God's reign. They had a view, and Jesus took this on as well, that one day God would come and in his presence he would bring shalom, meaning wholeness, healing, peace, justice, the righting of all wrongs. And so in praying this, we know the world's broken. 
Our own lives are broken. The world around us is broken. And we're praying that God would restore all things, that he would end violence and sickness and poverty and divorce and abuse and pain and our own sin and maybe even use us in the process. This is a prayer that gets us outside of ourselves, like the first one. Kenneth Bailey, a Middle Eastern scholar, summed it up this way. The request for the coming of the kingdom has to do with the big story, God's story, that includes the entire world, not praying merely for our own needs, but seeing beyond our individual needs. And I don't like this prayer because this prayer, thy kingdom come, thy kingdom come calls into question my kingdoms. We all have kingdoms. Whatever it is we try to control in our life, the areas that we walk in and find important in our lives, where we find our identity, what I look at to define who I am. You know, the main reason why people fight relationally, whether that's in a marriage or in a workplace or in a friendship circle, is because of overlapping kingdoms. Who's ruling this house, me or you? If my career is my kingdom and you also have the same angle, then we're competing for the same turf. Wherever we go, we find that there's some element of a kingdom that we are trying to control. And when somebody else's overlaps with us, we fight. We're jealous. And we lose our ground. I don't like this prayer because it calls into question how others might even view me, right? Like, if we asked your friends, your coworkers, people in your home, your friends, do you, do you live for God's kingdom or for your career? God's kingdom or your kid's place amongst their friends on the team, in the school? God's kingdom or your own importance? God's kingdom or you being loved and accepted by people? God's kingdom or your own ease and happiness? And so I think to Jesus, this is actually pretty tough stuff. And I wonder, can't we just skip on to daily bread and deliverance from evil? He says, sit in this one for a little bit when you're praying. Your kingdom, not mine. Your kingdom come, not what I desire. Your realm not mine. And that's what enables us then to step into the third petition, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will, in the way it's used here, is your purposes and intentions, but it's also actually sometimes translated what you delight in and what you love. So think about that, right? Thy will be done. What does God delight in? What does he love? And what are his purposes? So one way we think about God's will is trying to figure out what we're supposed to do in life, right? We talk about that as his explicit will, and actually it's pretty easy. There's things like the commandments, and there's the entire Bible. Do that, and you're fulfilling God's will. Many of us wonder, am I in God's will or not? Well, let me ask, are you actually following the entire Bible? Then sure. And honestly, when we're making decisions, which college should I go to? Who should I marry? Should I go to this store or that store? 
It's a mistake, mistaken understanding of the will of God to try and play that out, as opposed to saying, God has laid out his will. Hey, don't murder people. After that, you're good. And really and truly, there is a way of thinking there. But we're not going to dig into that until we get to the Ten Commandments. There's another way to think about God's will, and that's his sovereign purposes. Okay? This is the big story that Kenneth Bailey talked about. We've talked about the big story here. It goes like this. It's God's story. He creates the world. We reject him and turn away, but God continues to pursue humanity until he sends his son Jesus to redeem us from the curse of our sinfulness and brokenness in order to redeem us to himself and ultimately one day to restore all things under his lordship and reign. So it goes from creation to fall to redemption to restoration. You want to know what God's will is, God's purpose? It's that. It's that big story. He is bringing all things under his lordship. As we said in Philippians 2, until every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, that's where it's all going. And so when we're praying, thy will be done, it's longing for God's big story purposes to be fulfilled, and it's putting my desires, my delights, my aims and purposes under his And this, like the whole kingdom thing, is really hard to do. I mean, what do you do when God doesn't seem to be answering your prayers the way you want? And not just praying for things that you want, like to win the game, win the girl, win the contract, those things that we would just cash up as our wants and our desires. We sometimes get why maybe that wouldn't happen the way we want it. But what about when you're praying for things that are deep pain and anguish, your desperate prayers? They don't seem to be answered the way you're looking for them to be answered. I think we have somebody with us in that when we look at Jesus, and that's why I had us read what he said and what he does in Gethsemane. See, on the night before he's crucified, before he's handed over, Jesus goes out with his best friends into the garden to pray. Here's what goes on there. In Matthew 26, we read, Then Jesus went with them, his disciples, his best friends, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him his very best friends, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face and praying said, my father, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is in absolute anguish, in fear, in darkness, knowing that he's going to be abandoned by his best friends. He's going to be falsely accused and beaten and whipped nearly to death, stripped naked and hung with nails on a cross. And then he's going to be forsaken by God and experience the fullness of hell. 
so he's pleading with his father, is there another way? Can this cup go somewhere else? The cup of wrath. Can I, can I drink something else? But as he says in verse 42, summing it up, the second time he prays, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. He pleads, but ultimately he surrenders. Man intended evil in the accusation, arrest, crucifixion, and death of Jesus. God purposed that very same thing for good, didn't he? But we can't always see that. I remember as a kid watching movies about Jesus, and when I was a kid, they used to show Jesus of Nazareth on the television stations, like before Easter or leading up to Easter. And I knew the story. I was a kid who grew up in church. I knew the Jesus story. But every time it got to the end, to the arrest of Jesus, to his trial, to his beating, to his crucifixion, I wanted him to win. But, it, but by win, I meant I wanted him to escape. Or like actually talk to Pontius Pilate. Like give him some answers. He said he'd let you go. Or fight the Romans. I mean, he calmed storms and cast out demons. He could wipe them out. Something inside of me was always thinking as a kid, couldn't he have done more good if instead of three years he had 30? Why? It's the same thing that went through Peter's head. Just a few weeks earlier, Jesus, prom- he, he prophesies, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and elders, the religious leaders, who are going to hand me over to the Romans, and they are going to beat me crucify me, and I'm going to be dead, but on the third day I will rise again. And what is Peter's response? Never. Let it not be so. Jesus, that's crazy talk. I I know, Jesus, if we go to Jerusalem and it's a problem, let's go somewhere else. Let's stay out here in Galilee. It's like West Virginia. Nobody will find us. Or let's fight. I got this sword here. No one's going to touch you, Jesus. This is not a good idea. You know, Peter had the right mindset there, from the way that we think. Think about all the good that Jesus was doing. He was preaching the good news of the kingdom. He was extending mercy to the poor. He was healing people, feeding the hungry, casting out demons. I mean, Peter's probably thinking, surely, surely it is God's will that Jesus keeps doing these things. These are wonderful, God-glorifying things. And I think with many of our prayers, we could say the same thing. What if we can't imagine why God would allow something in our lives? Or what if we're praying for something, something we want that's really good? More people healed, more people demons cast out, more people fed. How can we pray? Not my will, but yours be done, when we can't see the full picture. The only way to be able to pray thy will be done in all circumstances is to really know and trust the thy. It's important who we're praying to. Jesus says, our Father who art in heaven, In other words, it's not just some guy's name, some guy's kingdom, some guy's will, or some impersonal forces, kingdom, name, and will. It is your father. 
your Father's kingdom, his name, your loving Father's will. And Jesus is the one who defines that Father for us. He does this just a chapter later in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount when he's again talking about asking and receiving, about praying. And he says, look, ask and God will give you. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And this isn't talking about your 14-year-old, 16-year-old kid who can't find something in the fridge. Those people were actually adults in that culture. This is talking about a five, six, seven-year-old, a four-year-old who's hungry. Dad, I'm hungry. You bring out a brick. Here you go, kid. Chew on that for a while. Dad, can I have dinner? Sure. Here's a live cobra. Have at it. Of course you wouldn't do that. That's evil. And Jesus says, look, you're sinful people. You guys are selfish, sinful people, and yet you give food to your kids when they're hungry if you have it. God knows what you need. He will give you. He wants to give you what you need. He cares about you, and he does have your best intentions in mind. He's not trying to trick you, not trying to give you a brick instead of bread. And in Luke 15, he also defines the father, doesn't he? It's the story of the prodigal son, which we looked at two weeks ago. There we see God as the father who is generous and patient and forgiving, willing to embrace an outcast, willing to celebrate a prodigal. That is who God is, and that needs to be in our head when we're praying. I'm going to borrow an illustration from Tim Keller. He said, is God your father or your landlord? Is God your father or your landlord? According to a Pew research, 29%, 29% of people who actually believe in God, this is taking out atheists, 29% of people who believe in God in America believe he is an impersonal force, not a personal God. Who are we praying to? A father or a landlord? Think about how the relationship might be a little bit different, Right? If you've ever rented a house or an apartment, you have a relationship with a landlord, but it's very different than if you have had a loving father. Why do you get a room in the house? Why do you get an apartment in the building? Because you have a contract and you're paying rent. It's contractual. You pay, he maintains the building. Now, have you ever in the middle of the night asked your landlord for a cup of water because you're thirsty? Or ever before bed, called up your landlord and asked him to come over and and read a bedtime story to you? It would be absurd, right? It's not the relationship. But with family, whether it's a father or a mother or somebody else where there's commitment and care and openness and access, you can be intimate. You can be needy. You can share life and have fun together. How we view God is integral to our ability to pray. How do you view God? Many people view God as somebody who expects something of us. You know, you've got to be a good person, right? There's things you have to do. There's just, everyone knows God sort of expects stuff of you. So if you're a nice, accepting, tolerant, good person, 
If you're moral, religious, you go to church, you follow the rules, you know, you do your duty and God will do his. That is a religious view of God and it's God as landlord. It's transactional. You pay through your goodness, going to church, charitable giving, generally nice guy, you pay and he maintains the life. It kind of gives you the expectations. But what happens when life turns sour? If you pray for something and it doesn't get answered as you desire, you know what happens when your view of God is that? You either turn to anger and unbelief. How dare, how dare this God? After everything I've done, I'm generally a pretty good guy. I mean, like, these far worse people have much better lives than me. Who does he think he is? Or you're racked with guilt. Because if bad stuff happens to you, it's probably because of something you did. And you know it. Or there's just confusion because you think, I thought I was pretty good, but I, why did this happen? I don't know. How? If that's entered into your head, question your view of God. Is he a landlord or is he a father? You see, the Christian God is that of a father. It is a loving, prodigal father who has forgiven and welcomed us even when we don't deserve it. And it's the father's love that enables my repentance and obedience. I don't obey to get his love. And if my prayer is not answered as desired, I can still trust that he has my best in mind because he is a loving father. And, and I keep turning to him because I've found that he's the one I go to for comfort and assurance. Like when a little toddler is injured or even when the little toddler is scolded, the very next thing they want to do is be hugged. In the midst of challenges in life, when you see God as a loving father, you turn to him more. Prayer, then, is meant to be relational and not transactional. It's meant to mimic things like how you interact with a good spouse relationship or with your best friend. You share your day. You wonder aloud. You bounce ideas off of them. You ask for help. You bring your worries and dreams to them because you trust them. You know that you're loved. But also, you listen to them. A best friend, a spouse, you listen to them. You understand them. You want to know their desires, what excites them, because you enjoy them. You love them. But to have God as your father, you first need Jesus. So you can hear me talking about, um, you know, praying this way, our father, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And you can go home and try and work on that. Try and get really good at praying that way. But you need to have God as your father and until you fully trust Jesus Christ, until you fully throw in with him, he is not your father. He is a God waiting for you to turn to him. But the gospel tells us through Jesus, God can become the father of anyone. In 1 John and John 5, we have these two verses. Skip to the next one if you would. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. To all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
See, that relationship with God as Father changes our prayer life. Our desires become His desires. I mean, think about it. When your child struggles with friendships or in school or on the field, you ache for him. When your spouse is miserable at work, you hurt for them. In relationships of commitment and love, you want what they do. And when God becomes your father, your desires change and align with his. And where they don't, you confess it and ask him to change your heart's desires, that you would want his kingdom and not yours. But because God is your father, because God is your father, you know you can bring all your needs to him, your hopes and fears, even the silly things like you just want to win, you want to get the girl, the job, to the more important things like you want the cancer to be gone. You go to him because you know he's a loving father. But you also surrender him because you know that your father is God. So our prayers should be matched by this desire to hallow his name more than for us to be loved and appreciated. For his kingdom to come, not just for my success or my perfect plans to play out. For us to say, thy will be done and mean it no matter what happens. Let's pray. Our Father, our loving and generous Father, help us to see you as Father and not as impersonal force or landlord, not as clockmaker, but as a loving Father. And then change us by your love, to desire your name, your kingdom, and your will more than our own. In the name of Jesus, who gives us access to this Father, we pray. Amen.